This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Today is Friday, December 1st, 2023. I'm Yulia, and I will be briefing you on the war in Ukraine. The key topics in today's exclusive report are Major sabotage near Mongolia Comrade General Storm attacks Crimea U.S. aid And our investigation into the FSB First, the contact line For our purposes, the line of contact is the location where small arms, tanks, APCs, and mortars are in direct engagement with the enemy. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine releases a daily report at 6 a.m. each morning that includes a breakdown of Russian losses for the past 24 hours. The losses that were reported to have occurred on Sunday, November 26th through Friday, December 1st, included 5,210 personnel, 51 tanks, 93 armored personnel carriers, 80 artillery systems, 7 multiple launch rocket systems, 6 anti-aircraft systems, and 168 tactical operational drones. 475 combat engagements were also reported. Russians shelled settlements 670 times in Chernihiv, Sumy, Kharkiv, Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, Kherson, Mykolaiv, and Dnipropetrovsk oblasts. Russian air attacks also continued every day in Ukraine. 62 out of 76 Shahed-131-136 drones were destroyed from November 26th through December 1st. Russians are doing two things with these Shaheds. They're launching a small amount of Shaheds, as few as one at a time, to keep mobile air defense groups scrambled and keep the Ukrainian population up all night under air alerts. They're also sending the drones from different locations, trying to find out where there may be gaps in the air defense. During the same time frame, Russia launched 9 KH-59, 2 Iskander-K, 2 Iskander-M, and 2 KH-31P anti-radiation missiles at Ukrainian civilian and military infrastructure. Ukrainian aid defenses destroyed 6 KH-59s and both Iskander-Ks misdirected 1KH-59, but could not intercept the Iskander-Ms and the KH-31Ps. They also launched 9S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used in a ground attack in Donetsk Oblast and 1KH-31P missile, none of which were destroyed. The, quote, storm of the century swept through Krym, also known as its wrong but often used name Crimea, and southern Ukraine from the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov. Heavy snow fell on the eastern parts of Ukraine, with lighter snow falling in the western part of the country. 
Despite the challenging weather conditions, both Russian and Ukrainian forces are continuing ground operations, but at a slightly slower pace due to snow and resulting poor visibility. Ukrainian Tavria Group of Forces spokesperson Colonel Oleksandr Stupun reported that in Avdiivka, Russians were forced to reduce their artillery use and use of drones by 1.5 times and 6 times respectively due to heavy snow and winds that reduced visibility. He added that Russia made up for this in Avdiivka by using more tactical aviation. In Kherson, in the meantime, the AFU used the poor visibility conditions to consolidate positions on the east, or left, bank of the Dnipro River. The Hortice Operational Strategic Group is responsible for the Kupensk, Liman, and Bakhmut axes in the northeastern part of Ukraine. The Kupinsk axis was relatively quiet, if there is such a thing, with no major updates to report. On the Liman axis, the general staff reported a huge increase in assault operations in the Srebrensky Nature Reserve on November 30th, with 24 attacks recorded. The main developments for the Hortice Operational Strategic Group occurred around Bakhmut. On November 28th, the general staff reported that Ukrainian defenders repelled 28 Russian attacks near Bohdanivka, Ivanivska, Klishchivka, and Andreevka in Donetsk Oblast. On November 29th, Deep State, which uses information from Ukrainian soldiers on the front and therefore may have a different perspective than the general staff or political leadership, reported that Hromove, a settlement northeast of Bakhmut, was partially captured by Russian forces. Fighting continues around Klishchivka and Andreevka to the south. The Tavria Operational Strategic Group is responsible for the Avdiivka, Marienka, Shakhtarske, and Zaporizhia axes in the central eastern and southeastern part of Ukraine. The zombie attacks have continued around Avdiivka, with less air support and armored vehicles. Maybe because Ukraine destroyed most of the armor? Ukrainian Tavrysk Group of Forces spokesperson Colonel Oleksandr Stupun stated on November 24th that Russian forces have decreased the intensity of airstrikes and reduced the number of armored vehicles operating in the Avdiivka direction, but that Russian forces are still conducting infantry attacks. The UK Ministry of Defense intelligence update on November 27th assessed that Russian forces in Ukraine have likely suffered some of the highest casualty rates in the past six weeks, mainly caused by Russia's offensive against Avdiivka. Russia's losses have reached a daily average of 931 troops throughout November and said that the general staff's reporting is plausible. You know what, the UK MOD? We can do you one better. Now that we have all the data for November, our team at Ukraine War Brief has calculated that Russia has lost 27,950 personnel, 340 tanks, 536 APCs, 682 artillery systems, 37 air defense systems, 2 aircraft, 2 boats, and 486 tactical operational UAVs in November alone, with most of the losses occurring in Avdiivka. The Russians, on average, lost 931.666 repeating personnel. I think the devil's number is right on the money here. 18 APCs, 23 artillery systems, 1.3 air defense systems, and 16 operational tactical UAVs per day. Per day! The AFU inflicted casualties on 300,000 Russian personnel by early November, since the full-scale invasion began. 
At this rate, they will reach 400,000 personnel by February 15th. The AFU is able to inflict such high casualties because they have the advantage of being the defender. They've also used tactical retreats to outsmart the Russians. On November 26th, for instance, while Russian troops flooded into the recently abandoned territory, Ukrainian Special Operations Forces hunted down the Russian artillery in the region. Geolocated footage showed the destruction of Grad and MSTAS artillery systems for HIMARS. Ukrainian forces, from their fortified positions in the woods to the north and their prepared positions to the south, decimated the Russian infantry and armored units using artillery and drones. This isn't to say that the Russians are totally losing the Battle of Avdiivka. They're trying, again, to take another city in order to control Donetsk Oblast. They did the same thing with Bakhmut last winter. On our substack, you can see the difference between October 1st and November 30th. The Russians have taken quite a bit of territory around the city, but the cost has been catastrophic. In Mariinka, a large column of Russian infantry arrived in the northern part of the city on November 29th in 20 APCs, a couple of kilometers from the front line. On December 1st, Russia took full control of the city. The AFU previously held 17% of the city, but was forced to withdraw. The Odessa Operational Strategic Group is responsible for Kherson, Kerim, and the Black Sea. Earlier this week, we reported that the Russians were getting cranky in Krynke, the settlement on the left bank of the Dnipro River. Based on new information, their morale has been downgraded to crotchety. During the storm, Ukraine deployed reinforcements across the Dnipro to expand their bridgeheads and reinforce already held positions. The Russians complained of insufficient fire support, lack of unit coordination, electronic warfare, and air defense against drones and low-flying helicopters. The general staff reported that some units are refusing to fight. And they're freaking out over it. First, let's talk about why this is so important. Ukraine's tactical objectives right now is to push deeper into the forest, which provides better cover for entrenchment, create enough cover to protect a pontoon bridge from fire, and save civilian lives from shelling an aircraft. If Ukraine can exert full control about another kilometer inland on the left bank of the Dnipro, it can achieve its strategic goal – sever the highways connecting Krym to occupied Kherson and Zaporizhzhia Oblast, and make a beeline along the highway in Kherson towards Berdyansk. Or, even better, Ukraine can head south towards Krym, sever the so-called land bridge, and isolate the peninsula from supply lines. Next. Let's listen to some Russians who are 645 days into the three-day special military operation. It's going swimmingly. On November 28th, Russian Major General Vladimir Zavadsky of the 14th Army Corps was killed when he stepped in a landmine in Kherson. Aw, sad. This is the sixth Major General to be killed during the special military operation. The three-day one. 50 Russian troops have been killed in minefields in Kherson over the past month. This, folks, is why you always clearly mark your minefields and don't keep them classified. The dearly departed Major General was in the area to, um, contribute to the so-called Dnepr group of forces. In addition to elements of the 14th Army Corps and their 80th Motorized Rifle Brigade of the Northern Military District, Elements of the 810th Naval Infantry Brigade of the Black Sea Fleet, the 177th Naval Infantry Brigade of the Caspian Sea Flotilla, 
the 22nd Army Corps, formerly of the Black Sea Fleet, the 61st Naval Infantry Brigade of the Northern Fleet, the 7th VDV Division's 171st Air Assault Battalion and 104th Separate Tank Battalion of the 97th VDV Regiment, the half-trained, newly created 328th VDV Regiment of the 104th VDV Guards Division, the 41st Combined Arms Army of the Central Military District, the 49th Combined Arms Army of the Southern Military District, and the newly created 18th Combined Arms Army's 70th Motorized Rifle Division of the Southern Military District have all been sent to Kherson to stop the Ukrainian advance. To summarize, elements of the Black Sea Fleet and Northern Fleet, the Caspian Sea Flotilla, the Northern, Central, and Southern Military Districts, and the, um, elite, formerly elite, VDV dopes on a rope are all operating in Kherson. The forces that are there are poorly trained, poorly equipped, exhausted, and taking heavy casualties. I wonder why they're having so many problems. On November 27th, Russian soldiers who were fighting in Krynku posted a video saying that their commanders were insane. They said that they had been actively fighting for four months without rotation. They complained that their commander, Colonel Alexander Vladka, continuously lied about the stability of the situation. And because the high command believed him, they did not allocate more troops and ammunition to the Kherson front. As a result, 80% of the people from their battalion are killed or wounded. And they also have to ration their ammunition. They are now refusing to assault islands in the Dnipro held by Ukrainians because it's a suicide mission. They could just, you know, go home. We are following what's going on in Kherson very closely. Now the temporarily occupied territories. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ukraine has reported that it will change the names of the geographic sites in the temporarily occupied Krym to their historical names in the Krym Tatarlar, or unfortunately better known as Crimean Tatar language. We talked about this in an earlier episode for subscribers only. Krym Tatar is a Turkic language, and the Turkic toponyms will be used. Names on road signs, new maps, and on maps that already exist will be updated to reflect in Krym Tatar. Shout out to Rade! who is our go-to for anything related to the peninsula. She explained to us why this is really important, and we hope to have her on the podcast soon. Her mother still lives in occupied Krym. Only 25% of Krymle, that's the real name of the Crimean Tatar people, still speak Krym Tatar at home, and the language is in danger of going extinct. Worse, the current names in Krym were assigned by the Russian Empire. During the late 18th century, the Russians, especially under Catherine II, renamed cities after the Greek Empire to show their European frenemies how advanced and cultured they are. Cities like Sevastopol, Simferopol, Yevpatoria, and Feodosia were changed from Akyar, Akmeshit, Gezlev, and Kefe. 
There are three distinct dialects in Krim Tatar, so people from Gezlev actually pronounce it as Kevlev. These changes will be implemented by the Ministry of Infrastructure, the Ministry of Reintegration, the Permanent Representative of the President of Ukraine in the Autonomous Republic of Krim, the Majlis of the Krim Tatar, and the Institute of National Remembrance. Names and road signs, new maps, and in communication with cartographic service operators and services that work with such signs will also be changed. Looking at you, Google, much more work needs to be done, though. Even though the Turkic Uyghurs in China have their own keyboard on Apple products, Karim Tatar does not. Hey, Apple, staring at you here. And, by the way, you still haven't even introduced Ukrainian-speaking Siri. You know, I'm available. I'm waiting for the job offer in my inbox. And while I'm waiting, I'll let you listen to Rory Finnan, a Cambridge scholar and the founder of Ukrainian Studies Department in the university, who wrote an extremely important and very detailed book on the history of Kremli called Blood of Others. He also recently joined U24's initiative with four other professors from prestigious universities to help Ukraine protect its skies. My name is Rory Finnan. I'm professor of Ukrainian studies at the University of Cambridge. I arrived in Cambridge in 2008 to launch our Ukrainian studies program. And since then, we've trained uh, hundreds of British students at the undergraduate level, postgraduate level um, on the diverse history of Ukraine. Uh, We're very proud of that. Russia is indeed, today's Russia, the Russian Federation, is an expansionist land empire. So all of us need to acknowledge this is a historical fact. It's a geopolitical fact. We see it in the practice of Russian politicians and armed forces, the brutality um, in particular. This is old-fashioned conquest of an empire to and on the territory of former colonies. So in the case of Russia, we need to first acknowledge an academic failure, an intellectual failure, and that is to ignore the fact that Russia uh, is an empire and has remained one. When Vladimir Putin spoke about the dissolution of the Soviet Union as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, he didn't have in mind the loss of the aspirations of world communism, for instance. He had in mind the loss of empire for those particularly in St. Petersburg and Moscow. What he was referring to is the loss of empire as a geopolitical catastrophe. And what we're seeing right now is a neo-imperialist venture of uh, horrific brutality that is actively engaged in recolonization. So recolonization first of Crimea in 2014, and then since then occupied areas of Donbass, and then those areas occupied since the full-scale invasion after February 2022. So for us in the West, we need to acknowledge this basic fact that Russia is indeed an expansionist land empire, and that is actively engaged in recolonization right now. So uh, why are the Crimean Tatars first, if we look at them as an example, so important? largely has to do with the centuries of the existence of the Crimean Tatar Khanate. And this is a a history that, of course, Moscow is not interested in us focusing on at all. But the fact of the matter is, over centuries, Russia has tried to efface the Crimean Tatar presence on the peninsula. And it is now very invested in crafting Crimea as some sort of this this uh, pr- primordial Russian land, um, and it's nothing of the sort. In fact, um, the uh, Kharkiv-based uh, poet Boris Chichibabin 
in the 1960s said, this is not Russia at all. Um, and one only needs to visit Crimea and spend time there walking through abandoned towns and, and, and villages, which used to have Crimean Tatar names to understand that this inheritance that is not Russian is present everywhere in Crimea. But nonetheless, Crimea has become a showcase for Russian geopolitical and cultural power. And we in the West are complicit in amplifying and promoting um, th this profile. So the Crimean Tatars are a constant reminder that this pro profile is uh, ephemeral, it's superficial. And so there has been a consistent effort to destroy the Crimean Tatar nation. We see it right now with the uh, the brutal crackdowns and oppression of the Crimean Tatar community and particularly civil society in Crimea. It's something that I think over the last um, nine years to our shame, we've ignored. So the West in particular, I think, has engaged in this amnesia about Crimea, about this crimnesia, if you will. And it's high time we focus on it um, before it's too late, really, before we see so much of the territory of occupied Ukraine being fashioned as somehow anciently Russian. And um, we see this going on with places like Berdyansk, uh, Mariupol in particular. And we have to stop this cycle. It's a, a cycle of ignorance that is perpetuating now violence. Comrade Hurricane attacked occupied Krim on November 27th, assisting the AFU quite a bit. Even nature seems to be on our side. Russia installed barriers intended to protect the Kerch Bridge were washed away. Defenses on the shore in Kefe, formerly known as Yevpatoria, were destroyed. The location of a strong jamming system near Akiar, formerly known as Sevastopol, and the pens that contained Russia's naval dolphins were washed away. We hope the dolphins are free and living the life. Meanwhile, Russia continues to export stolen grain and oil from the occupied territories of Ukraine. The Center for Research on Energy and Clean Air published a report two weeks ago that showed Russia's export revenue from fossil fuels in October was the second largest in 2023, and that half of the illegally transported oil was being transported on shadow tankers that aren't subject to sanctions. The EU, US, Canada, UK, Australia, Japan, and other Western allies imposed a price cap on Russian oil at $60 per barrel, and the countries in the alliance account for 90% of the shipping companies and insurers that enable the transport. 52% of Russian oil is shipped on shadow tankers, which aren't registered in ally countries and shouldn't be insured. Greek companies are suspected of skirting the sanctions. The top importers of Russian oil are China, India, Turkey, and Singapore. But Comrade General Storm had something to say about the illegal shipments. Three ships, two of which had Russian flags, that were transporting illegal Russian oil collided in the Kerch Strait to the glee of many Ukrainians on Telegram. Ukrainian Navy spokesperson Dmitro Platinchuk blamed the Russians for flouting safety procedures. Russians? Violating safety procedures? Never! Oleaginous Piggly Wiggly and advisor to the illegitimate governor of Krym, Oleg Krishkov, posted on Telegram on November 29th that Ukraine attacked internet providers. Again. During the storm of the century, he frantically posted updates on all areas without power or roadway access, while claiming that Ukrainians were spamming the chats to escalate the situation. He claimed that the fire in Akmashit was from thundersnow, which we don't believe. We always know that something is up when Grishkov is whining about something on Telegram. 
it's his thing. And also, I guess Ukrainian spamming Telegram is payback for Russia's $1.5 billion disinformation operation in Ukraine. More on that later. Mariupol continues to suffer under Russian occupation. Satellite images of thousands of mass graves were released on November 29th. Worse, Patron Drushenko, advisor to the mayor of Mariupol, reported on November 27th that radiation levels in the city spiked to over 15 times the safe level. The radiation spike was recorded on Pishchani Beach, in the port area. Russian propagandists tried to attribute the radiation to a normal event after a storm. Andrushenko, however, explained that it's because the cumulative equivalent of TNT dropped on Mariupol exceeded that of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There is a small amount of radiation in each bomb and rocket, which have nothing to do with the storm that hit the coast earlier in the week. Now, the home front. Russia attempted to sabotage Ukraine's Military Defense Intelligence Directorate, or HUR, by poisoning several of the agency's leaders on November 28th. According to Andriy Yusuf, agency spokesperson, HUR chief Kirill Budanov's wife, Marianna Budanova, was poisoned with heavy metals, along with several of Budanov's leadership team. Budanova was hospitalized because her exposure to the toxins resulted in a more concentrated dose compared by body weight to the other victims. CNN reported that Budanova was poisoned with arsenic and mercury. So, medical-grade arsenic is available to treat certain types of blood cancers, but under no circumstances is mercury used in medicine. All heavy metals like cadmium, thallium, cesium, mercury, lead, arsenic, and silver cause toxicity via a similar mechanism. The metals are oxidized, allowing them to travel around the body, pulling electrons away from where they belong. When the electrons leave their homes, the remaining positive charges damage DNA, expose the cell structures to stress, and disrupt the normal functioning of cells. Heavy metal poisoning is treated with something called chelation therapy. Chelation medicines are often injected into the vein, where they travel around the blood and bind to the metals. Then, the metal is safely exerted from the kidney and passed through the urine. Unfortunately, those affected will have to undergo treatment for many months of course, depending on the severity of the exposure. Poisoning is the hallmark of the Russians. In 2018, Russian military intelligence officers laced a bottle of perfume with the nerve agent Novichok, which killed two people in Salisbury, England. Good Russian Alexei Navalny's underwear was laced with Novichok in 2020, and he almost died. In 2006, Alexander Litvinenko was poisoned with polonium-210 after Russian FSB agents put it in his tea. In 2002, traces of aerosolized carfentanil were found on Chechen fighters who held a Moscow theater hostage. Alexander Peripilichny was poisoned in 2012 in Surrey, England, with rare toxin from Asia called gilzemium. Viktor Yushchenko, Ukrainian president who defeated Viktor Yanukovych in 2004, was poisoned with dioxin, the active ingredient in Agent Orange. Going back as far as 1953, the KGB used thallium to poison a defector in the United States. I'd note that all poisonings violate the chemical weapons convention Russia signed in the aftermath of World War I. Russia signed something. Ha ha. 
Governor of Zaporizhia Oblast Yuri Malashko gave a news conference on November 24th, saying that authorities discovered that nearly 500 tons of humanitarian aid, including food products, were stored at three businesses in Zaporizhia without proper documentation. Malashko said an investigation is ongoing into criminal negligence. Quote, Tons of food products sent to the Zaporizhia Oblast in 2022 have deteriorated due to criminal negligence. We will do everything in our power to ensure, hold accountable, the individuals responsible for this criminal negligence. End quote. The Ukrainian Ministry of Defense has been caught in a couple of scandals related to procurement under the leadership of former minister Oleksiy Reznikov. Previous scandals included buying eggs at inflated prices and a defense contract under which summer jackets were sent instead of the winter jackets that were paid for. Although Reznikov resigned because of the three scandals, there is no evidence saying he was involved. Sticking with the corruption era here, the State Security Services of Ukraine, or SBU, charged military officials in Kyiv Oblast for illegally selling food from supplies designated for the military. The corrupt officials stole at least 30% of the supplies in one military warehouse and then sold them to shops, restaurants, and markets for a total of $138,000. What a throwback Thursday to 2013 Ukraine under Yanukovych or 2003 Ukraine under Kuchma. Ah, I've missed it. Not really. Sidebar, the food in Ukraine is amazing. I have a couple of anecdotes here. The Ukrainian version of the Cliff Bar is called Eat Me. After the full-scale invasion, Eat Me developed a nutrition bar for the military, which was included in all MREs, also known as rations. Like so much other food produced in Ukraine, Eat Me has much less sugar than similar US brands, and still maintains a dessert-like taste. And while I have your ear here, and this is very not sponsored, unfortunately, there is another brand of Ukrainian food bars called Fizi that ships to the United States. They have two versions of their product, Guilty Pleasure and Protein Guilty Pleasure. You can order them online and try them out if you want. We've sent those bars to many a friends on the front line, and they really like receiving them in their care packages. Also, Feezy, if you're listening, we're not saying no to a sponsorship, so hit us up. President Zelensky dismissed the deputy heads of Ukraine's National Guard on November 24th. First Deputy Command Yuri Kondratyuk and Deputies Alexander Nabok, Oleg Sahon, and Mykola Mokolenko. In July, Alexander Pivnenko was appointed as the commander of the National Guard. So these dismissals were expected as Pivnenko brings in his own leadership team. The National Guard is part of the Interior Ministry and is responsible for public security. Their troops are also fighting on the front. One of the more famous brigades of the National Guard is Azov. Last week during his nightly address, President Zelensky confirmed that the general staff has created a plan for reservists who joined the military prior to the full-scale invasion. Reservists who were mobilized prior to February 2022 have been stuck in a limbo. For legal reasons, the reservists can't be discharged, but also can't be sent to the front. The plan would demobilize those reservists and then remobilize them so they can join others fighting on the contact line. We've got another misbehaving people's deputy on our hands. Mariana Bazuhla, deputy head of the Verkhovna Radas, or the Ukrainian Parliament National Security Committee, claimed that General Zaluzhny, commander-in-chief of the AFU, hasn't provided the military with a plan for 2024, and that he should therefore step down. The public comments are bizarre. Zaluzhny made it very clear, even in English in The Economist, what Ukraine needs to do to win the war. 
Bazugla is a member of President Zelensky's Servant of the People Party, and the committee didn't even ask for a plan. Ilya Samoylenko, chief staff officer of the Azov Brigade, responded to Bazuhla, saying on Twitter, not X, it will never be X, it's Twitter, that quote, The military does have problems, and the military solves them. The military also solves the problems of everyone else. The way we know how. Plans of the general staff are not a question of discussion among deputies or civilians. It's not their jurisdiction. And asking for those plans is outside their jurisdiction. There is this thing, subordination. Rabid dogs are not aware of it. End quote. Let's clarify this quote a little here. He's saying rabid dogs can't subordinate. Because they're rabid and out of their mind. In Ukrainian, the word for rabies and insanity is the same. Skaz. The direct translation is insane dogs, but it doesn't have the same meaning as calling someone a dog in English. The emphasis here is on the insanity and stepping out of line. Several members of her party called for her expulsion, but she's still a true servant of the people, as of this writing. A survey sponsored by USAID, hey, we saw their office in Lviv, reveals high levels of trust and unity within Ukrainian society amid Russia's ongoing invasion. Ukrainians were more likely to say they trust others than those who don't. The oldest were more trusting of others, while youngest were the least trusting. Those in the upper middle class were much more likely to be open to others than those in poverty. The family remains one of the strongest social structures in Ukraine, with those who trust their family members saying they trust others the most. The survey, however, couldn't reach those in the occupied territories. Ukranergo, Ukraine's national transmission system operator, and the European Network of Transmission System Operators announced the successful completion of an integration project with Ukraine that increases the export capacity from continental Europe. The project, which was completed before the November 28th announcement, synchronized Ukraine's electrical grid and the European power system. Europe's grid is the largest electricity network in the world. The general staff analyzed Russian airstrikes against Ukraine's air defense tactics with President Volodymyr Zelensky. Zelensky thanked Western allies during his November 28th nightly address for providing the Patriot and NASEMS defense systems, which he noted were particularly effective. He called on the military to further strengthen mobile fire groups that can shoot down Russian UAVs. Mobile fire groups roam the country, detecting and destroying Shahed Kamikaze drones launched from occupied Krym, Ukraine, Kursk, and Primorsko-Akhtarsk, Russia. The air defense forces of Ukraine have been working particularly well recently, even in the face of 75 Shaheds being launched towards Kyiv last week. Zelensky's address came a day after ABC News, the American one, not the Australian one, visited the secret, open-air training center in northern Ukraine, where soldiers train in shooting down drones with machine and anti-aircraft guns mounted on pickup trucks. Some of the guns used in the training were designed in 1886, like the twin Maxim machine gun. Lieutenant General Serhii Naev, who is responsible for air defense in the north, told ABC that, quote, Everything we have, all the help we get, we use to create mobile fire groups, to fill every inch of space here. We understand that there is currently a resource war going on. The Russian Federation gets its resources from the axis of evil, North Korea and Iran. It must be understood that the reduction of aid will really hit our defense capabilities. But we will fight with what we have. End quote. Over the past two months, Russians launched 800 drones at Ukraine while stockpiling about 870 cruise missiles for likely attacks against Ukraine's energy infrastructure. 
An unusually warm autumn resulted in fewer air attacks. But nevertheless, Ukraine is preparing for an incoming bombardment. Is it Groundhog Day or is it just me? The Verkhovna Rada posted a memorandum on its website officially, once and for all, putting off elections until the martial law is done. Under the Ukrainian constitution, no election can be held during martial law, and only Rada can extend the period of martial law for a maximum of three months at a time. Under the agreement, which was discussed in Zakarpatya, leaders of most political parties agreed to hold elections six months after martial law is over. Leaders of Servant of the People, Batkivshina, Holos, and European Solidarity Parties, as well as smaller factions, signed the memorandum. Glad that's cleared up. Maybe finally. Speaking of dystopian repetitions of nonsense, let's talk about Russia and effectively occupied Belarus. The girls are fighting! The bickering in the Russian ultranationalist mill blogger, um, community? Feels like the real housewives on Bravo. Keyboard warriors Ramanov92, Maskalkov, two majors, and 13 got into a scuffle after one of them had family members threatened by Ramzan Dondon Kadyrov's Chechen Ahmad forces. Maskalkov shut down his Telegram channel on November 25th, although by November 30th he was claiming that it was an accident. ISW and other OSINT researchers wrote up an extensive play-by-play of the catfight. Okay, let's take a step back here. The fact that the otherwise reputable ISW took the time to document and analyze this pissing contest among Russian disinformation sources is more than funny. It betrays a truly disturbing reliance by those in the West searching for daily content and a willingness to accept information spoon-fed to them by agents of the Russian government's disinformation apparatus. Perhaps our friends at the ISW and others need to take another look at this and ask themselves, what value are they generating by using their time to document turbo-patriot infighting? The U.S. State Department published the five pillars of Russian disinformation through its Global Engagement Center. They are official government communications, state-funded global messaging, cultivation of proxy sources, weaponization of social media, and cyber-enabled disinformation. Russian Telegram mill bloggers like Wargonzo continuously fall into state-funded global messaging, cultivation of proxy sources, and weaponization of social media. We urge our Western partners to use extreme caution when relying on these Russian channels for information. On the night of November 25th, Ukraine sent up to 20 UAVs into Russia, which headed across the Sea of Azov, Tula, Kaluga, and Moscow. Reports varied widely, with Russian sources saying all the drones were shot down by air defense. Tula's governor said at least three buildings were damaged, and one casualty was reported. During the night into Sunday, operations at Vnukova and the Madyadova airports in Moscow were temporarily suspended. Methinks it's about time to shut down these airports permanently, so they know what it's like to live in Ukraine. Russia moved yet more military gear from its western borders with NATO. Um, I thought the whole point of this special military operation was to protect Russia from... NATO. UK's defense intelligence reported on November 26th that Russia moved strategic air defense systems from its Baltic coast enclave of Kaliningrad to backfill recent losses on the Ukraine front. Kaliningrad, which used to be called Königsberg, borders Poland and Lithuania and is just 40 miles from effectively annexed Belarus. 
It makes no sense for Russia to move military assets away from their exclave, given that it's surrounded by NATO countries. Russia moved S-400 Triumph air defense systems and Iskander-M ballistic missiles for use in its war in Ukraine. The Ukrainian Ministry of Suspicious Fires has been very busy. No, that ministry doesn't exist, but maybe it should. The Moscow Times reported that an explosion, followed by a large fire, erupted at the Chelyabinsk tractor plant in Russia, near the border with Kazakhstan in the Ural Mountains. The plant produces engines for T-72 and T-90 tanks, Terminator armored fighting vehicles, and self-propelled artillery. Just 15 days ago, we reported another explosion at a gunpowder plant in Katovsk that makes gunpowder for artillery. Russians took to Telegram in Krynki, complaining they lacked gunpowder. Aw, sad. They really should get serious about fire safety. An anonymous HUR source told Hrometske that the explosion at the aircraft manufacturing plant on November 26th in Smolensk, Russia, was its doing. The Russian MOD claimed that it shot down a drone over the city. Vasily Anohin, acting governor of Smolensk Oblast, said there was no damage or casualties. But that doesn't really match the video showing the plant going up in flames. Smolensk is about halfway between Moscow and the border with Ukraine, 350 kilometers from both. Aw, equality. Further east, Ukrainska Pravda reported that the SBU destroyed the only major railway connection between Russia, China, and North Korea. On November 29th, an explosion was reported in the Severomuyski tunnel along the Baikal-Amur mainline in Buryatia region. The tunnel is nearly 2,500 miles, or about 4,500 kilometers from the border with Ukraine across the Asian continent. Okay, so this tunnel is a BFD, as it were. The Severomuyski tunnel is Russia's longest railway tunnel, stretching over 15 kilometers. It took from 1975 to 2003 to complete. Engineers described the rock that it had to cut through as extremely difficult, with, surprise, reservoirs of water and very high air pressure. It casually took only 28 years to finish construction. Buryatia region in Siberia borders Mongolia, and the Baikal-Amur mainline route is the only major railway that connects China and North Korea to Russia. The SBU allegedly planted four explosive devices on fuel tankers, then detonated them while the train was in the tunnel. As a result, Russians were forced to use a bypass that was built in the 1980s. In the second part of the operation, the SBU detonated two explosive devices on a train carrying fuel on the bypass route. The bypass route includes a 35-meter-long, quote, very high bridge. This bypass is dangerous to navigate due to hairpin turns, steep inclines and declines, and Soviet-quality bridges. And trains can only travel at a maximum speed of 4 kilometers per hour. With both the bypass route and the tunnel out of service, it's not clear whether North Korea and China can still send arms shipments via train. Some analysis here. Because these tunnels and bypass routes are out of sight of the public, Russians primarily use them for military transportation. Hence, it's been very hard to get quality video of the damage. Satellite imagery doesn't help us much here. The damage in the tunnel depends on the ventilation system, what type of fuel was set alight, air pressure, where in the tunnel explosives were detonated, and the type of volume of fuel. But, to quote our resident retired firefighter and research extraordinaire John Stamp, 
If someone told me I had to help put out a fuel fire in a 15-kilometer-long tunnel, I'd call in sick. Time will tell the damage to Russian supply routes. Open-source intelligence should be helpful once we have satellite images of the bypass become available, along with data on increased maritime trade between Russia and North Korea. All is going to plan. Finally, Russia announced on December 1st that it was increasing its recruitment target to 1.27 million personnel, or 15%, in 2024. In a post that we've liberated from the Kremlin's website, the Russian MOD announced that it wouldn't start mobilization or changes to subscription, but the additional 170,000 troops will join the military through a recruitment drive, aka mobilization. The Kremlin said it was afraid of NATO. If the Kremlin is so scared of NATO, why did it withdraw so much military equipment from their NATO-surrounded exclave, Kaliningrad? Hmm. There is this Russian saying, it is literally translated to, you can't understand Russia if you are using your brain to do it. And you know what? indeed. Next, News Worldwide. We have some choice words for the United States Putin caucus, also known as the far-right wing of the Republican Party, especially in the House of Representatives. The caucus is led by Speaker of the House Mike Johnson, who we'll get to in a minute. A source on the Hill said that the House is drafting the language of the supplemental aid package to Ukraine starting next week. Now is the time, if you're in the U.S. or a U.S. citizen abroad, to call your representative in Congress and urge them to get off their asses and pass the $60 billion supplemental security bill for military support to Ukraine. For Ukraine to win faster, the bill's language must include maxing out short-term military aid and the expenses of long-term military and humanitarian aid, front-loading military aid by mandating sending half the aid within three months of passage, and allowing Ukraine to receive modern weaponry, like Israel. By putting this language into the bill, it forces the administration to lift restrictions on the quantity, quality, and timelines of military aid. Not to say that the Biden administration has done everything it can. According to publicly available information, the president let 1.9 billion, yes, that billions with a B, in presidential drawdown authority expire. Worse, the administration is sitting on nearly $3 billion in U.S. security initiative funding that's barely been used. Biden should release the aid now. And if you're in the D.C. metro area and would like to urge your representatives to get off their asses and pass the bill faster, in person, we strongly recommend that you attend the rally in support of the passage of the Ukraine aid bill this Sunday, December 3rd, in front of the Capitol at 3 p.m. in Washington, D.C. We are going to be there. So, you know, at least come to say hi. We know that politics comes first. We can see how Biden may have tried to withhold some funding from Ukraine to push Congress to act urgently. However, Biden wasn't gambling that Hamas would start a war with Israel, nor that Speaker McCarthy would be replaced by Speaker Johnson, and the responsibility for gambling Ukrainian lives in a difficult political environment ultimately lies with him. To be clear, Biden is infinitely better than Donald Trump when it comes to Ukraine. But better than Donald Trump is the lowest standard we'd expect. 
That is not to endorse Nikki Haley that somehow has won a lot of sympathy from supporters of Ukraine who conveniently forgot that she has voted no on everything Ukraine-related up until recently, until it became convenient for her to take the opposite position to Donald Trump and try and get the nomination through those voters he is not getting. Our personal take is that Nikki Haley is running for president just so she could split the vote. You know, the vote of the reasonable people who are not going to vote for Trump but still want to vote Republican. Um, I would also like to remind you that all of her other policies are very much in line with MAGA Christofascism. Um, this Ukrainian here says, do not vote for Nikki Haley if you're doing that for the sake of Ukraine. She does not care about Ukraine. Ukraine's counteroffensive was frustrated by the slow walking of the delivery of weapon systems, fighter jets, air defense, artillery, and small arms ammunition too. Just because something is committed doesn't mean it's necessarily sent, as we've seen time and time again. A case in point, Reuters reported on December 1st that deliveries of extended-range glide bombs wouldn't start until 2024. The U.S. approved Boeing's request to send the 160-kilometer range bombs in late 2022. The timeline for delivery ranged from spring 2023 to fall 2023. Here we are in December 2023, with bombs still not delivered, allowing the Russians to further entrench themselves. It's an indictment of the administration that Russia can source kit from Iran and North Korea faster than Ukraine's Western partners can. It's a threat to national security and shows that the West still doesn't understand Russia or its threat to Ukraine and the world. We spoke to Serhii Plochy, professor of Ukrainian history and director of the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard, who explained why it's so difficult for the West to understand Russia. We all hope that uh, the war will end soon. Um, if you look at the war from the historical perspective and understand it as the war for independence against basically really declining empire, uh, we know what the outcome of that war will be because we have examples of the American Revolution, we have the examples of the, of the emergence of independent states in Europe, in Africa, Asia, and so on and so forth. So. The history in that sense is on the Ukrainian side. But history can't really be a good guide in terms of uh, providing the particular chronological frame. Unfortunately, what we see from history, this process is, can be long. The process of disintegration of empire can also occur very fast. There is no one pattern that one can follow. What is happening with this particular war is that Russia, Russian Federation, the current regime in Russia, uh, started to prepare for this war a long time ago. And we know that since at least mid-2022, once the realization came that Ukraine didn't collapse, that Ukraine will fight back, the preparation started for, for a longer war in terms of restructuring economy, preparing for the, for the war conditions. And that certainly suggests that the war can't be really won if Ukraine and Ukraine's allies are not prepared to fight that sort of war that, first of all, the war was really forced on Ukraine and the world by Putin. And now the longer war, the more exhaustive war, the war of attrition is being forced again by aggressor. So unless, unless Ukraine 
is not, and it's a lies. Again, I think lies are very important in that story. Are prepared to fight that war. It's quite possible and and quite easy to lose the war. Not in a sense that Russia would achieve its original goals of wiping up U- Ukraine and. Ukrainian identity from the map, political, mm-hmm. cultural, and otherwise, that will not happen. Mm-hmm. But certainly, the conditions on which the war can end could yeah. be of a sort that uh, we already know from Minsk One and Minsk Two, which instead of peace, there would be just an armistice, which will provide time for the aggressor to yeah. get ready for another aggression. So, for me, that sort of peace would be tantamount to loss. The administration has resorted to a tried-and-true American tradition to cajole Congress into passing the aid package, bribery. Biden's congressional team is circulating a memo showing how much aid is going to each state. Companies in Arizona, Pennsylvania, Texas, Florida, Arkansas, Wisconsin have all received at least $1 billion each. Another $18 billion in contracts is spread across at least 25 other states. Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Wisconsin are key swing states, both for the presidency and for control of Congress. Pennsylvania received the most at $2.3 billion, followed closely by Arizona at $2.2 billion. Members of the Putin caucus in each state have voted against funding for Ukraine, including 18 out of 25 Republicans from Texas, 3 out of 6 from Arizona, 3 out of 8 from Pennsylvania, 11 out of 20 from Florida, two out of six from Wisconsin, and one out of four from Arkansas. One member of the Putin caucus was expelled from Congress on Friday, adding his or her name to the history books as the sixth member to be expelled since the Civil War. Winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, the Pulitzer Prize, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, the Fields Medal, the Medal of Honor, and Brazilian Drag Queen of the Year, 2013, Representative George DeVolder Santos, of New York's 3rd Congressional District, was kicked out of the House following a two-thirds majority vote. Santos is under indictment for stealing credit card information from victims, including other members of Congress, to put in his campaign. The con artist also received money from Russians tied to the intelligence services and used the funds for vacations, OnlyFans, and purchases at CVS. Um... I might say he also used that on Botox, but that's just an assumption. You know, based on nothing in particular. You do you, girl. But seriously, get a better professional. It is really obvious. Robbie can recommend you one. He still has about six syringes worth of credit at his local med spa and is truly willing to share for the better good of everyone. A special election will be held in February to elect his replacement in the competitive House district. Turning now to exclusive reporting from Ukraine war brief on the Putin caucus Speaker Mike Johnson, Maria Butina, the ongoing failures of FBI counterintelligence and the Department of State, Treasury and Defense to protect the United States from Russian malign influence. Back in 2018, Special Counsel Mueller identified that a Russian shell company called American Ethane Company, LLC, had illegally donated $11,600 to Mike Johnson's re-election campaign. Johnson was forced to refund the money after it was discovered. American Ethane was owned by Russian oligarch, billionaire, and Putin ally Andrei Kunodbaev, FSB agent Mikhail Yuryev, and former Putin aide Alexander Voloshin. Yuryev was the handler of spy Maria Butina, 
The red-headed stooge who infiltrated the National Rifle Association and was sentenced to 18 months in prison for acting as a foreign agent by the federal judge currently presiding over Donald Trump's upcoming January 6 trial, Judge Tanya S. Chutkin. This story, well reported on at the time in 2018, resurfaced when Johnson was elected speaker. But that was pretty much the end of media scrutiny. Our investigation found that the Russian intelligence activities of Kunadbaev and the FSB have continued unabated since then. You see, the media, and the government, incorrectly reported that American Ethane Company was a Louisiana limited liability company. In fact, it was a Texas limited liability company that was registered to do business in Louisiana. Texas has some advantages for Russian intelligence operatives. The Texas Secretary of State's website sits behind a paywall and charges a fee for each basic search that's free in almost every other state. Texas is also home to the Houston Tech Bridge, which is like a smaller version of California's Silicon Valley. By searching the Texas Secretary of State's website, we discovered that the Russians never stopped their malign influence operations. Kunadbaev, the Russian oligarch, and Yuryev, the FSB agent, still own a holding company called YK Holdings LLC. In their filings, they list Russian national Alexei Damahin as the contact for the holding company. We were able to connect Damahin to several other shell companies in Texas, including Advanced Technologies of America LLC and subsidiaries Integrated Quantum Photons, Inc. and Photon Auto, Inc. A quick reminder that the U.S. Treasury sanctioned the export of any technology and expertise that could assist Russia's transportation, infrastructure, or military sectors. Bewilderingly, Kunadbaev isn't listed as a sanctioned individual, giving him and the Russian government access to U.S. banking and investment opportunities. Our case study, Advanced Technologies of America, has almost the same address as the now-defunct American Ethane Company, LLC. 2323 South Shepherd Drive, Suite 800, Houston, Texas. American Ethane was listed as operating out of Suite 900. YK Holdings is in Suite 850. What's so wild about this story is how openly the FSB has been operating. In 2019, three professors at the University of Texas at Austin temporarily left their positions at the university to run a startup company called TexPower Inc. Professors Arumgam Mantharam, an Indian-American national, Wang Dali, a Chinese-American national, and Evan Erickson, an American national, are engineering professors who research cobalt-free electric vehicle batteries. The research is critical because 90% of the world's cobalt is controlled by China. TexPower received funding from the U.S. Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, and the U.S. Department of Energy, among other government agencies. Public filings show that likely FSB spy Alexei Damahin and Russian billionaire Andrei Kunadbaev purchased 46.22% of TexPower Inc. in June 2022, just four months after the full-scale invasion began. The transaction was completed using the shell companies Advanced Technologies of America and YK Holdings. TexPower Inc.'s website looks strikingly familiar to America Athanes. Public filings show that Damahin is the chief operating officer of the TexPower Inc., even though he's found nowhere on their website. The company didn't respond to requests for comment. An email sent to TechPower's chief executive officer, Professor Erickson, was forwarded to his personal email address. He responded by pointing to his resignation statement on LinkedIn from October 15th. His departure leaves the company entirely in control of foreign nationals. 
Russia and China are likely stealing sensitive technology to evade sanctions and corruptly influence the defense sector. The company continues to attend defense conferences and continue operations, all with Russian money. The FSB's operations in Texas date back to at least 2012, and Russia has long had a consulate in Houston. We continue to investigate. Decades of Russian spying were also exposed by Radio Liberty this week. Their investigation shows that Russia infiltrated and influenced the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, or OSCE, for a very long time. In October, Ukrainian investigative news outlet TV Toronto showed how the OSCE sent a Russian spy to monitor Ukrainian elections. Radio Liberty's expose preceded the tumultuous OSCE summit in Skopje, North Macedonia, on November 30th. Poland, Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia boycotted the summit. The OSCE was established in 1975 in Helsinki, Finland, or its lesser-known yet correct name, Suomi, as a platform for the Soviet Union and Western powers to discuss security concerns and is currently headquartered in Russia-loving Vienna, Austria. Like the EU and ineffective UN Security Council, each member can effectively veto the actions of the organization, whose membership has ballooned to 57 member states since its inception. Russia's continued membership in the OSCE is similar to its membership at the UN. Its aim, like China's, is to subvert and sabotage its operations to undermine the United States and its allies. The OSCE has sent missions, or monitors, to every hot or cold conflict initiated by Russia, including Sakartvelo, known by its incorrect name, Georgia in 1992, Moldova in 1993, Kosovo in 1998, Serbia in 2001, Montenegro in 2006, Ukraine in 2014, and Hayastan, known by its wrong Russia-assigned name, Armenia, in 2022. At its summit from November 30th to December 1st, Russia vetoed Estonia's bid for the chairmanship and left it without a budget. Germany, Sweden, Suomi, Czechia, and Ukraine all walked out of Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's address during the summit, and the EU and the United States didn't even bother to attend the formal meeting. Radio Liberty's expose showed that the OSCE has been infiltrated with Russian spies at the highest level. The OSCE General Secretariat employs Anton Vushkarnik, a former employee of the Russian embassy in Washington, D.C., Daria Bayarskaya, Putin's former interpreter, Saltanat Sakimbaeva, wife of Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Andrei Rudenka, who himself was a special representative to the organization. All of these positions granted Russia access to a wide range of sensitive information. According to a European diplomat who spoke with Radio Liberty, Sakimbaeva was privy to information regarding the operations of the OSCE's special monitoring mission in Ukraine. Colleagues of Anton Vushkarnik refer to him as the colonel. He's under heavy monitoring by U.S. intelligence because of his suspected ties to Russia's security services. Bayarskaya translates statements in Russian on the OSCE's website, and some of those translations drop any mention of Russia when mentioned as part of its ongoing invasion of Ukraine. Shocking. We actually welcome the breakdown of the OSCE since their platforms exist for security talks in Europe that don't involve Russia. Russia only understands one language, and that's the projection of power. And on that note, Tobias Billström, Sweden's foreign minister, told reporters on November 28th that Turkey is expected to ratify Sweden's NATO membership in the coming weeks. 
Hungary, which is also blocking NATO membership, has repeatedly said that it wouldn't be the last country to ratify Sweden's accession, meaning NATO should have a new member soon. Billström added, quote, We expect white smoke from Budapest the moment there is white smoke from Ankara. End quote. We have some questions for Turkey and its president-dictator Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Turkish exports to Russia of dual-use civilian and military goods have soared 300% in 2023. Speaking to the Financial Times, U.S. and allied officials expressed concerns that Turkey is acting as a conduit for sanctions evasion. You think? Brian Nelson, U.S. Treasury Undersecretary for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, was in Istanbul and Ankara this week to discuss, quote, efforts to prevent, disrupt, and investigate trade and financial activity that benefit the Russian effort in its war against Ukraine, end quote. Um, at what point can we kick countries out of institutions like the EU and NATO? If Hungary and Turkey love Russia so much, they shouldn't fear an invasion. Why are they in these alliances? Oh, I forgot, because Hungary is broke and needs European money. And Turkey wants to blackmail NATO for its technology through its control of Bosphorus Strait. Suomi's got the right idea. Starting November 30th, it closed all borders with Russia until December 13th. Prior to the closure, Suomi closed all borders except the Raja Giuseppe, crossing in the Arctic Circle, which is now shut down. Russia weaponized Suomi's asylum process, sending waves of refugees from the Middle East to flood border checkpoints in Suomi, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and Estonia. Estonia is considering shutting down all of its border crossings as well. The EU is moving ahead with a proposal to tax profits for more than 200 billion euros, or $218 billion, of frozen Russian central bank assets to aid Ukraine's reconstruction despite concerns from several member nations. The fate of the plan depends on a meeting of the European Commission on December 6th, with representatives from countries who don't want to be weaned off Moscow's teat, like Belgium, Germany, France, Italy, and Luxembourg. The plan is scheduled to be adopted the week of December 12th. But we never underestimate the EU's ability to shoot itself in the foot. A group of Ukrainian citizens forcibly deported from occupied Ukraine have been blocked from entering Sakartvelo, aka Georgia, on its border with Russia. At least 16 Ukrainian nationals have been stuck at the Lars crossing, some for as long as 18 days. Among them are several Ukrainians from Krym who were imprisoned by occupation authorities prior to 2014. Russia is forcing them to live in an unheated basement, making some of them sick, which echoes back to the deportation of Crimean Tatars in the 1940s. Unlivable conditions. The Ukrainian embassy in Tbilisi is aware of the situation and is working on it. Skaturian's platoon of Russian propaganda, ketamine addict and owner of SpaceX, Twitter and Tesla, Elon Musk, had a tamper tantrum at the New York Times Deal Book Summit on Wednesday. He told Disney CEO Bob Iger to absquatulate. There's a public perception that that was part of a apology tour, if you will. That this had been said online, there was all of the criticism, there was advertisers leaving. We talked to Bob Iger today. I hope today. they stop. You hope... Uh, don't advertise. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If, if somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go f*** yourself. But go f*** yourself. Is that clear? I hope it is. 
Hey, Bob. Here in the audience. Well, well, let me ask you then. That's how I feel. Don't advertise. How do you think then about the economics of, of X? If, 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 if part of the underlying model, at least today, and maybe it needs to shift, maybe the answer is it needs to shift away from advertising. Um, if, if you believe that this is the one part of your business where you will be beholden to those who uh, have this view, what do you do? F-Y. I, I understand that, but there's a reality too, <laughs> right? Yes. No, no. It, it, I, I mean, Linda no, Yaccarino is right here and she's uh, got to sell uh, advertising. Uh, absolutely. So, um, no, no, totally. So, so no, no, actually what, what this advertising boycott is, uh, is, is going to do, it's, it's going to kill the company. And do you think that the company- I, I, but, and the whole world will know that those advertisers killed the company and we will document it in great detail. But there are, those advertisers, I imagine, are going to say, they're going to say, we didn't kill the company. Oh, yeah? They're going to say... Tell it to, tell it to Earth. But they're going to say, that, they're going to say, Elon, that you killed the company because you said these things and that they were inappropriate things and that they didn't feel comfortable on the platform, right? That's, that's and, what and they're let, going to say. And let's see how Earth responds to that. So, okay, this, then this goes back to... We'll, the, we'll both make our cases right? and we'll see what the outcome is. What are the economics of that for you? I mean, you, you have enormous resources, so you can actually keep this company going for a very long time. Would you keep it going for a long time if there was no advertising? I mean, if the company fails because of an advertised boycott, it will fail because of an advertised boycott. And that will be what bankrupted the company, and that's what everybody on Earth will know. What do you think, then, of the... I guess, this goes back to the idea of trust, though. Then it'll I, be gone. And it'll be gone because of an advertised boycott. But, but you recognize that some of those people are going to say that they didn't feel comfortable on the platform. And I, I, wonder, I just wonder and ask you and think about that for a Tell second. Tell it to the judge. On Twitter. Um, on, on X. On yeah, X. Yeah, yeah. So um, no idea what this Twitter thing is you keep talking about. Should you platform him? That's what they said. Yeah. Should you platform him? And I said that I think that it's our role, and I know you have issues with journalists. I have a platform. Um, yeah. I, I know you have an issue with journalists uh, oftentimes, but I said it's our role to have conversations and to inquire and um, to and sometimes even interrogate ideas. And sure. that's, I, I'm hoping we can do that. So I want to start just so we can begin this conversation and just level set. Take us through everything that happened, if you could. Everything? No, over the past week and a half. How long have you got? We've, we're gonna, we're, we've got the time. Uh, um, okay. You, you send out a, you send out a a post or an X or a tweet. Yeah, I don't know post, what you want to describe yeah. it as. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm trying to change, like when things were just 140 characters, it made sense to call them a tweet because uh, it was like a bunch of little birds chirping. But when you know, point at which you can put like three-hour videos on, it's like a, it's a very long tweet. So, so, so here we are. Post is more descriptive, I think. And at some point, I don't know where you were, but you write in responding to another. Yes. Um, this is the actual truth. And it set off a firestorm of criticism all the way to the White House. Right. And then you make this trip to Israel. You have advertisers who've left the platform. People calling Well, uh, the, the trip to Israel is independent of, of it wasn't some like uh, apology tour, I want to be clear. That was 
Uh, well, let's, let's talk about that. So just, but just uh, take us back to the moment at which you write that. Trip to Israel is independent of, it wasn't okay. like in response to that at all. Well, let's do, we'll do Israel in just a moment. And I, I, I have no problem being hated, by the way. I hear Hate you. away. <laughs> well, but you know what? I, I, let's go straight to that then for a second. Sure. Because there is an idea, and you could say that I think it's a real weakness to want to be liked. A real weakness. Uh, is this really a man we want to control vital space communications and clean driving technology? I mean, the answer is really a resounding no. But I had to ask for research purposes. Finally, military and tech. Iran has finalized arrangements for the delivery of Russian-made Suhoi-35 fighter jets and helicopters, according to Iran's Deputy Defense Minister Mahdi Farahi. Plans have been finalized for Su-35 fighter jets, Mi-28 attack helicopters, and Yak-130 jet trainers to join the combat units of Iran's army, end quote. Iran's air force only has a few dozen strike aircraft assembled from a bedraggled combination of Russian and pre-1979 American kit. Ukrainian forces uncovered Chinese-made munitions, including 60mm mortar shells, at Russian positions near the occupied city of Melitopol, raising new questions about potential Chinese military assistance to Russia. Radio NV host Vasil Pechno published a picture of a Chinese-made 60mm mine on his Telegram channel that was allegedly found by Ukrainian forces near Russian positions in occupied Melitopol, Zaporizhia Oblast. Yuri Poita, head of the Asia section of the New Geopolitics Research Network, appeared on Radio NV and said the mine is an M83A high-explosive anti-personnel fragmentation stabilized mortar mine. Mandarin characters are clearly visible in the photo, but the information could not be independently verified at this time. That concludes our brief today. We'll convene again soon. Join us on YouTube and TikTok for more Ukraine content and live news reports. And if you haven't already, don't just consider, but subscribe to our work on Substack, Patreon, or to our Apple channel. It helps us a lot. You will get ad-free briefs, access to interviews earlier than everyone, and more. До зустрічі!